0: Hello everybody and welcome to today's episode of the Money Mitch Effect. I'm Mitch Michaels. Thanks for joining me on this sports podcast journey. we got a lot to talk about today. Second show of the week. It's Friday and there are a lot of stories in the sports world. we got to start off with hockey. We haven't given it enough time. That it's on me. We're going to talk hockey with Eric Roberts, host of the In the Wheelhouse podcast. We have uh, a lot to discuss there, including the red-hot Tampa Bay Lightning, the struggling Edmonton Oilers, and a lot of storylines that involve some movers and shakers in the NHL. The Kings back in first place. and The Golden Knights not going anywhere. A lot to discuss there. And then Jose Youngs comes back on the show to discuss the John Giancarlo Stanton trade to the Yankees. Uh, what the Marlins are doing, giving up players. Derek Jeter not going to the owner's meetings. Some UFC news and notes. Cyborg at home coming up. Big UFC heavyweight title fight. And some pro wrestling because it's Jose Youngs and we talk pro wrestling. But Eric Roberts first, Jose Young second, it's the Money Mitch Effect, hope you're feeling good on this Friday, let's start the show. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, he is a Fox Sports Radio producer and a co-host on the In the Wheelhouse podcast, a hockey uh, aficionado to say the least, Eric Roberts returning back to the show. Eric, thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect.
1: Oh No problem, man. Always a pleasure to jump on and talk some hockey with you.
0: We're going to talk a lot of hockey, but the first thing I want to bring up, just knowing you know that it's wintertime and knowing that you're uh, a fan of other sports too and a fan particularly of the Buffalo Bills, how cool was it to see them play in that blizzard? And not only play, but get that win against the Colts.
1: Oh man, it's funny. I was locked in from the... Uh, I, I, I knew the forecast going into Sunday, and then once I rolled over and I saw some of the... Uh, The pictures that were coming out of Buffalo, I was locked in pregame from the opening kickoff to the OT winner, uh, the run by McCoy. It was fun to watch, dude. A lot of people, some people were kind of turned off by it, but I just, visually, it was so cool to see. And it was just, it was kind of just entertaining in the fact you never knew what was going to happen. You never knew if the ball was going to squirt out. I I was so entertaining to see some of them try to kick those field goals and extra points. I Terry getting that one through the uprights was amazing to me. I mean, I know he did have a little, um, a little history with snow kicks, but yeah. it was a great game to watch. It was real fun. I mean, I, sitting through it in person would be a different thing, but watching on TV in California, sunny, seventy-five degree weather is a different, different kind of deal.
0: Yeah, props to all the all the Bills fans that stuck it out uh, in the cold. And, and I didn't know the weather forecast ahead of time, but it was one of those things where it just it stops you in your tracks, right? You see. Uh, the footage in the pregame or on Twitter, like, this is what the weather's like in Buffalo. And then immediately, we, we were at a crowded sports bar on an NFL Sunday morning in, in you know, sunny California, and all of a sudden, everybody's locked into the Bills-Colts game. So, it's cool yeah, to it, see. Yeah,
1: it's, it's like a flurry. You couldn't really see anything. It was just a white screen for most of it. <laughs> it was just it was really a, a crazy sight.
0: Yeah, props to both teams, and especially the Bills, 7-6, and six, now still in that playoff, unsurprisingly. We'll see what happens there, but it was uh, a very good treat for their fans and fans of football. Let's now talk, though, about hockey, and uh, we want to get one of the negatives out of the way. There's a lot of storylines in the NHL this year, some uh, surprisingly good things, but I think the biggest disappointment in the league, Eric, and the one that I'm I'm really anxious to talk about, what is going on with the Edmonton Oilers? Because both of us were pretty high on that team. A lot to like roster-wise, they have not been good at all this year. There's no way to really sugarcoat it at all. Eric, this is a team with cup aspirations uh, in the preseason. And yet, here they are, just awful in the Western Conference right now at the bottom of their division. At second last in the standings in the West, only the lowly Arizona Coyotes are lower than them. What exactly is wrong with this team? I, I look at the roster, I don't understand why they're playing as poorly. Is there one thing we can point to and say this is what's been the Oilers' Achilles' heel this year?
1: Uh, I don't know, man. I think it's, may it might be a little bit of a. It's kind of. I think it's a snowball effect. I think they they might be gripping their sticks a little too tight because things aren't going as well as, as they had hoped. And you know, coming into last season, they they, they were still the Oilers, and then they had the great season. McDavid had a great year, and you know, coming into this season, there's a lot more pressure on. You know, they they are a young team outside of you know some of the older players. They got like Milan Lucic is on the team, but they're a very young core. So I think it's coming in with the added pressure of Stanley Cup aspirations for a lot of people out there. We're talking, I mean, we we had a, pre- a preseason show where both of us were pretty high I'm saying, hey, it wouldn't surprise us if you even picked them to win the Cup, you know? So I think it's a growing season. It's, it, they're just in a rut, and it's taking them a little more to find their way out of this one because there's more. There's a lot more pressure on them. Edmonton is back on, like, coming to the, these games. Edmonton, the media, everybody's watching them again with these aspirations of, hey, you guys should be, if not leading your division, in the hunt, in the one, two spots, and really being a contender for the Cup this year.
0: Yeah, Uh, if you look at the advanced metrics, I mean, even some of the basic stats, they're still averaging three goals a game, kind of middle of the road in the NHL uh, with that. Goals against the the typical Oilers, you know, pitfalls always been how bad they are, and it, it hasn't been good at three point two three goals against, but it's not the worst in the league. It's it's in the top ten worst, I should say, but about eighth right now. They gotta get McDavid some help. They gotta just win games that they're supposed to win. And in their own building, Eric, they have nine home losses, five and nine at home. In regulation, nine home losses. Only the Sabres, and we know how bad they are and weren't really expected to be oh, yeah. have that many. So I'm I never thought a team would be this poor at home, especially the Oilers. And while McDavid is doing his share I'd like to see some of the other guys step up you know Drycidadal signs that contract hasn't really performed this year uh defensively. I don't see many answers there as well. I'm going to be honest, I don't know how McClellan still has a job
1: yeah it's 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 one of those things where i I think I just keep going back to it. They were just doing so well last year, and I think the league kind of figured them out and they kind of caught up to him in a sense. You dropped the the uh, the goals or the average goals for you know the middle of the pack. This is a team that should be running and gunning and winning these games. Just because last year they did win these games, they they were high flying. They would give up, you know, a good amount of goals, but they had the offensive power and the offensive guns to win these games. But it looks like I mean the, the goals are on uptick throughout the league, and you know it looks like the rest of the rest of the league has kind of caught them. And in some cases, I mean, you see the standings and pass them.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I just look, their differential is about eight in the negative right now. That's not terrible. I think they're just losing a lot of either-or type games where they're just not able to execute in the third periods of games. I did see them get absolutely obliterated a couple weeks ago by St. Louis on national TV. But honestly, the thing with this team, though, is and a lot with the with the standings this year, they're only seven points out of a playoff spot You know, in their division. So it's not over yet. I think they can still make a run. That's what surprised me about whether there's not a coaching change or not because we've seen it before. I mean, the Penguins have won two Stanley Cups in the last decade by doing that strategy. The Kings won one as well when they went to Sutter. So I'm just nothing against McClellan as a coach. I just don't think it's working right now.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, you, you dropped the two, the two most recent cases. Uh, that mid midseason, I think it might be a little too early. They might be giving McClellan a little more time to try and figure this out and maybe save his job. But definitely once the, once the season starts itching to, inching towards, you know, the trade deadline, if they're still, you know, five, six points out of the playoffs, but still close enough to maybe get a strike in and get in in a wild card, you've got to be thinking McClellan's seat's going to be um, warming up at least.
0: Yeah, very fascinating how the Oilers just can't seem to get it right. They've been stuck in, in neutral. I wouldn't even say reverse, just not what we thought they'd be. Still talking hockey with Eric Roberts on the money-mitch effect. Let's talk about a team that is doing great things, that we were bullish on to begin with, and it panned out early in the season. And that's the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Eastern Conference. Most points in the league, 46. They have two games in hand on some of their Western Conference rivals that are at the top point spot. But, Eric, they are 22-6-2, have a plus-39 goal differential, lead the league in goals for top five in goals against. There's not much that this team can't do, and I'll, I'll be perfectly honest, Eric, I, I'm having a hard time figuring out a way if they're healthy that they get tripped up in the playoffs. I know anything can happen in, in the NHL, but this is a damn good team and one that doesn't seem to have any weaknesses.
1: Oh, no, definitely. I mean, and, and you you drop, you give them the stats already, and it all starts with their three, their, their workhorses. I mean, Nikita Kucherov is killing it mm-hmm. right now. He's up top, paired with uh, Stamkos and uh, Namastenkov and then Vasilevsky on the back end. He's he's stopping everything. It's like they're they're they have the three they need. You know, they got the offensive attack, they got the 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 stud on the defense on the blue line, and they have the great goaltending and the health. But that's the thing with with the Lightning has always kind of been the health problem. They seem to get nipped with the you know a bit by the injury bug at inopportune times. But and the whole league is getting a glimpse of what they could do when healthy, and the whole league should be really. Really taking note because they are a a scary team right now. Yeah, they
0: have the top two point getters in the league. (laughs) Like one and two tied for first in Kucherov and Stamkos. 42 points in 30 games. Kucherov, 21 and 21. I'll give you a little tidbit too, Eric. I was at the Kings-Lightning game as we were talking about before we recorded when the Lightning scored four. In the first period, and Kucherov scored a goal on, a, on a, just an absolute missile pass from Stamkos, and he undressed quick and scored. And the PA announcer said out loud, "His goal uh, is—I think it was 18th goal of the season." This was like two, three weeks ago. You know, the fans were like, "18 goals!" Like, <laughs> yeah, every out loud. Yeah, no, they're,
1: they're they're moving at an insane clip right now. I mean, it's insane. They really hit the floor running, and they haven't slowed down. They really haven't had a lull. I mean. You said it, 42 points for each of them in 30 games. Like, that's an insane clip. Like, 21 goals for Kucherov, 12 for Stamkos. They're scoring, and they're just scoring and scoring and scoring.
0: Yeah, and their power play is absolutely disgusting, too. I, I think when you have that many good players. And, and Steve Eiserman and what this front office has done, it, it's not. I mean, we talk about the top two players, but we've seen duos that haven't won anything in the NHL. I mean, look at the Thornton-Marlow uh, Sharks years and some of those Ducks teams that haven't panned out with Corey and uh, Perry and Getzlaff. But how about what Osmond's done? I mean, Braden Point, did anybody really know who he was before this year? He's got 28 points in 30 games. So it's not it's it's remarkable how they're able to find talent. Victor Hedman on the back end, and you mentioned Vasilevsky, who comes in. I mean, how smart does the front office look in that situation? They let Bishop go for a big contract. He's, he's a little rocky right now in Dallas. And Vasilevsky just steps in two point five, two point one five goals against. It's insane.
1: Yeah, it's nuts. And you, it, the Tampa Bay Lightning are one of those teams that you feel like they—they're kind of due for you, you know a deep run. They've always just kind of been around, and you know whether an inopportune in, injury. I mean, Stamkos missed a huge chunk last year. Just and they've always been there. They've been like one, one or two games away throughout the playoffs. They had an overtime throw in a Game Seven against the Bruins a while back. Like they're always on the cusp and how they're playing now you you got to just you you have to put them in that number 1 spot and really think that if all these if everything stays intact and nobody really gets hurt this team is everybody chasing this team they are the they are the front runner right now
0: Yeah that's a good point the injuries last year they were never healthy they could never you know dig out from under it was too little too late they started winning games but they had too much ground to make up last year and I think Cooper deserves a, a lot of credit, too, Coach John Cooper, for what he's been able to do. And any time, I don't care how good you are as a team, you're able to win games on the road, back-to-back nights that came out to California and won all three games. I think that just shows you how deep this team is. Well, Eric, in, in a follow-up from that, I look at the Eastern Conference, and right now the team with the second-most points is the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now, 41, they're, they're I'd say, kind of on the heels. They're on the radar of Tampa Bay. But the Metropolitan Division has kind of cannibalized itself. Columbus and Washington are at the top positions. New Jersey a point away. The Islanders, Rangers, and Penguins all within striking distance. But I'll ask it like this. Who do you think right now is the second-best team in the Eastern Conference? And, and do you think that team, whoever it is, will still be the best, second-best team? Or do you think somebody will make a push later?
1: Uh, I don't know, man. It's tough to say right now because I mean, point wise, I would like to say it's Maple Leafs, but I just I don't buy into it. And but I also there's reasons for me to buy into it because I mean they're doing this with you know they're five points behind Tampa Bay and we just pumped Tampa Bay up for how long and they're right behind them and they've done so with Matthews, you know, in and out of the lineup. So it's like yeah. he really even hasn't even found a groove. So I want to say that they could even you know they're the number two team. But then it's it's always hard for me to bet against you know the perennial teams in the in the league and, and the Eastern Conference with the Washington Capitals. I mean they're still doing well. I mean and they have the every season we're talking about Ovechkin. Every season we're talking about is it this their year and what Tor- Tortorella's done with the Blue Jackets. But I I want to go out on a limb and say the Maple Leafs. But I'm just scared because of you know they are they're also an Oilers kind of team, really young, a really just on the scene kind of thing, and they could cripple. You know, I, I, but I want to say the Maple. But I, that could definitely come back and bite me in the in the long haul.
0: Yeah, I think right now it probably is Toronto. I, I still don't know if I can trust the back end of this lineup, the defense and the goaltending to to get through the grind of the playoffs. Uh, I you know maybe it is a bias, but I think Columbus, with their depth, is built towards a, a postseason. They're not really scoring a lot of goals, but Bobrovsky has been playing some amazing hockey. Uh, they're still kind of figuring out their lineup. And I think the simplest answer, Eric, would be the capitals if they can just avoid Pittsburgh in the playoffs, right? I mean, because they got to feel yeah. good about every other team,
1: yeah, I mean, it's pretty, if if Superman could just avoid Kryptonite every episode, man, it'd be a, just a, a lot smoother sale for him. but that just seems to be the all the last hump they need to get over and to to get into that that last that last round of the playoffs. But and it's just that's the thing. It's just always hard to bet against them because every year, they're there and they're right there. It's it's like they're gonna fight. You you think they're gonna figure it out just because you're used to seeing them every year in in March. You know, in June, like okay, you're gonna be there, but right now you're you're playing you're playing really subpar.
0: Well, and and I think I mean it, it, I'm glad we're we're on the topic of it. The Capitals, because they started out as poor as you could expect this team to start out, given the players that they have. I, I do think the window's closing a little, but it's not rushing the close. If that makes sense, I think they're. I mean, they're eight and two in their last ten, so they're starting to get better. And I still expect this team probably to win this division and look good for a playoff spot, uh, for a playoff perch position. But when you talk about this division, Eric, you have the Blue Jackets, who we mentioned, that are tied with the Capitals for first, the New Jersey Devils. Who started out strong? They've they're five four and one in their last ten, but they're actually scoring some goals this year to help out Corey Snyder. It's them. It's the Penguins. It's the two New York teams that aren't going away. I'm I'm really interesting to see interested to see how this metropolitan division plays out because with the exception of probably the Flyers, and then you can get down even further to maybe a, a team like Carolina. This division is going to be full of good hockey night in and night out.
1: Yeah, you have a lot of like kind of just it feels like a lot of teams are waiting in the water waiting to kind of strike. I mean, in Columbus, you don't really have Cam Atkinson really hasn't really found his groove yet. You're curious to whether or not this, the long postseason runs are kind of wore the Penguins down and whether or not they can catch wind. How the Penguins are playing around it kind of reminds me when the Kings, you know, they won two two cups in three years, went to the Western Conference Finals, mm-hmm. and they just looked slow and then they missed the playoffs in that, uh, that fourth year. What was it? 2015, was it? Yeah. Um, so it kind of reminds me of that situation. They look, you know, that's it's their figure. You play so much extra hockey when you go on back-to-back Stanley Cup runs. It might take them a little longer to find their legs, or even find them if they find them at all. I mean, n- minus ten goal differential right now. That's just not Penguins hockey, you know. I mean, Matt Murray has been has had a little bit of an injury problem, but it's just they just look tired to me, the Penguins.
0: Yeah, I mean, anytime, I mean, we talk about how good Sidney Crosby is a lot on this podcast and and how good this team is, but anytime you play two, basically another quarter of a season and and then have that shorter time to recover, it's going to take its toll in any sport, let alone probably the most physically grueling grind there is in the NHL playoffs. They also lost some pieces on this team. You know, Benino's no longer there. They don't have the depth at goalie that they did with Flurry out there. So while I don't expect this team to miss the playoffs, I think they could be due for a step back, and it's only because they're human, and that's <laughs> what we should expect. It's the reason why no one's three-peated in like twenty, you know, thirty years or whatever it's been. So um, it's going to be tough there. Uh, before we do go to the Western Conference, or if we look at the bottom of this conference, I just want to mention one thing in particular. I, I saw the Buffalo Sabers; they've been having a poor season. You know, eight, seventeen, and six on the year. But the stat that just blew my mind, Eric, was. It took them over two months of actual hockey for defenseman to score a goal for this team. I saw that and I just thought that was ridiculous. Like, how is that even possible?
1: Yeah, this team is. This team has some real. This the, they might not get the same amount of chances, but this team is a real problem with offensive production. I mean, I think they went three and a half games without scoring a goal recently. Maybe mm-hmm. two. Maybe two or so weeks ago. They're having they have some real identity issues. I mean, and they have they have some of the weapons. You know, they have Evander Kane, they have Jack Eichel on their on their team, but it's just they really are struggling with there are some identity problems. They brought in um healthy over the over the off season a goal specialist when he was playing, and it's just it's not working out. And the big thing in Buffalo is it's it's starting to you're starting to see video surface of it wearing losing wearing on Eichel and snapping his stick, going off on players and stuff like that, and then when you're when you're when you're per, when your young kid is showing these kind of wearing and tearing already just because of the losing you get really nervous and on top of that you got you got the success of McDavid on the other end of it it's like it's just yeah. it's it's tough in buffalo right now man the bills better not lose anytime <laughs> soon because it might it might throw buffalo into a panic yeah,
0: yeah, I just. And Phil Housley was was an offensive defenseman, too. That's another thing that confuses me there. But, all right, Eric Roberts, Money Mitch Effects. Let's go to the Western Conference. And surprise, surprise, the feel good surprise story of the Western Conference the Los Angeles Kings right now, 29 3. 20 wins, 9 losses, 3 overtime losses. They're atop the Pacific Division and just one point off the Blues for top points in all of the Western Conference. Eric, this is a team that is in salary cap uh I'd, I'd call it purgatory maybe not hell but definitely purgatory coach stevens is basically a similar version of daryl sutter but yet this team seems rejuvenated kopitar's playing great dustin brown's even scoring goals quick's back to being great there Doughty's amazing as always but i'm still surprised are you surprised this team has figured it out so fast under this new coach
1: I am. I've, I felt that it was going to be a better team this year. I definitely saw them making the playoffs and it with, you know, a new kind of oomph in their, in their play, but they look, they seem like they're having more fun and they're more free out on the ice. It really, they really seem like, you know, Stevens and Blake and Robitaille being at the, at the reins has really breathed new life into this organization. I mean, Kopitar and Brown are having bounce back years. Brown had a string of down years. Kopitar had a, you know, a down year last year and they're, they're already. I think they've already passed their goal output from last year. But um
0: Brown has. I know that for sure. Yeah,
1: I know. Yeah, Brown definitely. I think Kopitar might might be like two or three back at this point of the season. But you know, and they have the young kid if I follow on their line, and they're doing all this with Jeff Carter. With Jeff Carter down with the injury, Jeff right. Carter hasn't played in weeks. You know, with uh, his tendon issue. So I mean, they're doing well. They're scoring goals. They're they're. It kind of looks like the old kind of Kings hockey we we were used to. You know, like solid defensive hockey and go and get your goals you know it's it's great to see him back in first place in the division that's for sure
0: yeah it really is and i think you mentioned one of the names that deserves a lot of credit for this and that is luke robitaille for i mean I, I, coach stevens has done a great job but robitaille and blake in the front office really shaping the roster doing what they could uh you mentioned i follow they signed him out of uh, university of minnesota duluth i believe and, uh, you know, I, I think that was not a that was not a guy high on everyone's radar. And he stepped in Adrian Kempe, a guy that I thought was one of the bright spots, one of the few young bright spots in their minor league system is stepping up with 17 points and really his first full NHL season overcoming injury. They got off to a good start. And that's so key with the with this team. How many times in the last couple of years have it been the same old Kings where they start out slow and then they have to go on a tear. When you start out well, you can rest and you can overcome some of these injuries. But to me, as is the story with the Kings, as is how this team, the way the roster is set up, is going to play good hockey. It's going to be to keep the puck out of their net, and they're leading the league in goals against. A lot of that has to do with Jonathan Quick, but uh, I just think the way the team plays it has been uh, a barometer too. And, and by the way, I don't want to call my shot now, but I would be stunned if Dowdy doesn't win his second Norris Trophy.
1: Oh yeah, and he's he's playing very well. I mean, and he there was a quote circling circling the uh, the internet a couple of weeks ago talking about it, where he's talking about the money he deserves, and you know, it, he, I think he, players think about they they know what they're what they're putting out into the world, and I think he knows that he's on pace and he's having a great season. And another Norris Trophy will only solidify him calling for more money. And the big question will be when when he goes and gets it, if the Kings can give it to him. That's, that's a weird, a crazy thing to think about in the future. But, you know, another Norris Trophy, depending on how far the Kings go with them this year, he's going to be asking for a payday soon.
0: I mean, it, you have to. I mean, there's I like a lot of these Kings players, but given what he's done and also the biggest thing about these contracts, what he has left on the table in his hockey career, I mean, he just does too much. I mean, to play as many minutes as oh, yeah. he does and play on all the special teams. Oh, yeah. Teams. I mean,
1: you give the farm to Kopi and, and Dowdy; Those are your two pillars, and you find a way to make it happen. And they've already given Kopey his cash, and Dowdy is next in line.
0: So i got to say this, Eric, uh, talking other teams in the Western Conference. How are the Vegas Golden Knights still this relevant late into the season? The the, the new car smell has worn off, yet they're still third in the league in goals scored. And still in a playoff position. How has that happened?
1: It really is nuts, man. I mean, it's, it's crazy to think they're only, they're three points behind the Kings with with two games at hand. So I mean, they, they they could easily be ahead of them depending on how the you know the two games at hand play out. But and the fact that they're in this spot with the injury plague they've had in the crease, they were down to like their fifth string goalie at one point in the season. I mean, I think Flurry's back. They had uh, Malcolm Subin in net for a little bit. But they were they were playing with some guys that were in the WHL still at one point this season. Like <laughs> yeah. they, it really is insane to think. I mean, and they, but you touched on the the uh, the home records earlier, and I mean they're they're eleven two and one at home. I, <laughs> I mean, if, if you can win your home games, it's going to help you it'll go a long way. And it's it, it might be the new car, the new feel thing. People, players, teams don't know how to go into Vegas and play because they're eight and seven, eight and seven and one on the road. So you know they there is a very big home ice advantage there but it's it really is nuts for this new these new kids on the block to be kind of be kind of running the show in the western conference right now they're they're swinging with the heavyweights
0: yeah and and again just making the panthers look terrible for getting rid of Gallant because he is a phenomenal coach he's doing a great job with this roster he's the perfect guy for this job um, I, I don't know. I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop and it to fall off, but it might not given how other teams in this, in this specific division have struggled. Five points up on the nearest team, the San Jose Sharks, who are in their own issues, uh, and the Ducks struggling as well. I don't know. I, I think they have an offense that is designed to score dirty, gritty goals, and it works. So um, that's a good strategy in the NHL, but I, I'm – I'm intrigued to watch them. It was a good story, them starting out a new franchise. And uh, I can't remember an expansion team in their very first year. um, A true expansion team, not a relocation like Colorado, who won the Cup when they came over from Quebec. But I can't remember a a true expansion team doing so well in their first year. It's just been uh, amazing. Um, But, Eric, I do want to ask about some of the other teams in the Western Conference because you look at the Central Division you have the Blues up top playing just great great hockey as well. I know they lost to Tampa Bay the other night. But Winnipeg, another team with a great home record, is second, followed by Nashville. No Dallas, no Minnesota, no Chicago in those positions. No Chicago and Minnesota really stands out. The Central, do you think that is another division that's going to sort itself out? Or there's some real issues in Chicago and Minnesota that we're going to be that way until the end of the season?
1: Uh, I mean, it's kind of tough. It's kind of like what I said about, the, you know, the, the Metropolitan Division. You know, you got these these teams that are kind of just waiting in the water. And Chicago, I feel like Chicago might – I feel like their window might be closing a little bit. You know, it's they're a little older. You know, they're not the young – it's not the young Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves anymore. Crawford in the back end isn't – he's not stealing games, you know, like he used to. And he always, he wasn't ever really – out there just rock solid. He would give up a fluky goal here and there, so I think Chicago's cards might be not lining up as well as they did for them in the past. And Minnesota, Minnesota's the one I'm surprised with because I thought last year was really going to be their their building block towards the future, and, you know, this was going to be the start of a long string of playoff appearances. But my thing was, I'm not, I'm, I'm not actually not surprised with Winnipeg. I feel like Winnipeg was due, and this off- these offensive-driven young teams, you know, with this team is anchored by young kids, fast, offensive hockey. They have a good home ice advantage, you know, going up in Winnipeg. It's cold up there, man. Tr- teams don't want to go up there and play. And I'm I'm I really like Winnipeg in the Central Division.
0: Yeah, Winnipeg is a very big team. They have size at every position, and it reminds me of really does Eric when the Pacific, when the Pacific Division was at its peak with the Kings, with the Ducks, with the Sharks, all these big teams that just impose their will. You started to see it a little bit with the Blues, and I, and I think Winnipeg knows that this is how they're going to play hockey. They do have the home ice advantage. I think they're finally getting some, some consistent goaltending. I'm with you. I think they're a team that's there to say. As far as Chicago goes, I just want to hearken back on them for a second. Chicago is a team that has, I think they still do at this point, or two of the highest-paid players, if not the two highest-paid players, with Kane and Taves. So it's always going to be a challenge for them in the duration of this contract. Is figuring out what players can go around their stars. They're not, and because of that, they're not really having consistency. I think it's not even a controversial statement to say Panarin was a better fit on this team than Brandon Saad, even though he's making his return. Panarin could play with Kane, and they could be one of the most dynamic lines in the league. Saad is is playing on the Taves line. I just don't. I'm not nothing against Brandon Sutter. He's a great player, but he's not Panarin on this team. And I think that's part of what we're seeing. This is a team that's also getting old. Keaton and Seabrook aren't spring chickens. They look like they have lost a little. As sad as that is uh, for Chicago fans, so I I think there there's some aging going on in Chicago. And and I speak for the rest of the NHL when I say it's about time.
1: No, yeah, definitely. I mean, you think back. It's it's kind of one of those things that you mentioned the early like the uh, the Kings, Sharks, and Ducks teams of the past. I mean both these same players we're talking about the Blackhawks were right there with them. And you look how the Kings are doing well now because they've kind of evolved. And you look at the, the ducks and the sharks, they're falling a little bit back because they haven't evolved in the division. Same kind of thing with the Blackhawks. They're falling behind because, you know, they still have these, these players, these older players, they're, they're getting up there in the miles and they're not injecting this youth like the Kings have with the, the I the Kempis to kind of, I don't want to say pick up the team because they're not going to carry the team. They're young kids, but, you know, to in, inject a little bit of leg and speed like the rest of the NHL, which is why, you know, the Kings have fallen back last year. The, the, there was an obvious young influx of talent and speed and legs. And, you know, the, the Blackhawks, they're just they're, they're getting up there in age, man.
0: Yeah, and, and one more point on Minnesota, and I think we saw it a little with Nashville and some of the teams. We've seen this time and time again, where when you're close or you think you're going to make a cup run, you mortgage some of the future. And I think that's part of Minnesota's problem. Some of the moves they made last year at the deadline to get themselves ready for a playoff push that didn't happen. When they lost to St. Louis, they really did mortgage some of the future there. And I think we're starting to see that with some of the roster moves or, or weaknesses in
1: 2017-18. Yeah, definitely. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see what Chicago does here if they're not. It's been a while since Chicago's been any kind of sellers at a trade deadline. So if they're on the bubble or even on the outside looking in, it'll be interesting to see what they do, you know, with the Duncan Keith on the team and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, certainly will be. Uh, the NHL season, about 30, 32 games in for these teams. Still a lot of a lot of time left, but this is when teams start to make their move. Well, Eric Roberts, this was a blast. Thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Lastly, i got to ask you, though, is there any player that we didn't get to, anybody, or maybe that we did but not, Thoroughly that you you know that you want to you know give a shout out to for just a great start of the season maybe some of the under under the radar guys that are that are balling out this year.
1: Uh, you know I mean I don't know I've my I've honestly I've been really I've, I touched on Eichel a little bit earlier I've been re- I mean my Buffalo ties here I've been really locked on an Eichel and I just uh, I I'm, <laughs> if I were to give anybody a shout out it would be him just to hold tight man just just you can, just hold tight it's eventually gonna work out. Yeah, okay,
0: I I hear you there. I, I definitely do. I guess one guy that I want to I want to give a shout out to that I didn't really talk about, you know, because the stars they got enough credit. We don't need to. We don't really need to address them as much. But the Vegas Knights, William Carlson was a fourth liner for the Blue Jackets last year. Fifteen goals and eleven assists in thirty games. He's become a, he's become a that, legit dude. guy. Just needed an players, opportunity. Man,
1: it's it's insane when yeah it's insane when players get their shot, dude. If they get their shot and they just get off the bench and they they grasp it and they get get the floor running it's crazy what they can do with it
0: i mean and it goes to show you yeah it goes to show you that if you if you put yourself in that position if you're ready uh to to be in that position to get a chance to succeed and you take advantage of it good things can happen i mean this was a guy that has never really come close to these kind of numbers last year he had 25 points total just six goals. Now he's got 15. So, um, I'm I, those are the stories I like. Those are the the stories. Just waiting for that opportunity and showing out. So we'll see what happens with his team and uh, the rest of the teams uh, in the NHL. But Eric, this was fun. Good luck on your podcast. Anything else uh, to plug? Anything exciting coming up?
1: Oh, nothing much, man. Big Buffalo Bills game this weekend. Hosting Miami. Possible snow game. So oh, wow. tune into the TVs and might you might get some more white on the ground. I know there's I know it's snowing on Saturday. So. I gotta like the team, and then you could also possibly you could see Buffalo <laughs> implode too if they lose.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what do you expect from either of these teams? It's hard to it's hard to say, really. Uh, but I think I'd like it, the team it, it, from Buffalo. I think I'd like the team from Buffalo in a snow game against the team from South Beach.
1: Yeah, it, I'm after watching the Dolphins against the Patriots on uh, Monday night. Kenyon Drake looks like a real problem. We the Bills have had a problem with the run game since trading Marcel Darius. We've gotten run over by the. The Chargers, the Saints. So, after watching Kenyon Drink kind of light up, light everybody up the last couple of weeks, I'm hoping for a lot of snow on the floor.
0: <laughs> I think we all are. I think we all are. Well, Eric, thanks again for joining the Money Mitch Effect. Until next time, we'll see what happens in the hockey world. Thanks again. Thanks, buddy. All right, huge thanks to Eric Roberts for coming on the show. A reminder to check out his podcast, In the Wheelhouse, for hockey and other sports takes. But great discussing hockey with Eric Roberts. Uh, it was a pleasure. He'll be back on soon for sure. Now it's time to talk to my good friend, Jose Youngs, about a lot of different topics. We start out with baseball. He's a Red Sox fan. I'm an Indians fan. We both just don't like the Yankees. So the Stanton trade hit hard. We talk about that, what it means for the Yankees. What uh, a lot of storylines mean, how the Marlins are going to be giving up on players yet again. Otani's signing with the Angels. Some UFC talk as well. <laughs> Got to talk to Francis. It's coming up in January, but I can't wait. And then Jose pitches me and everybody else on New Japan Pro Wrestling. and some big pay-per-views up there as well. It's Jose Young's UFC MMA writer for FanSided. up next here on the Money Mitch Effect. Alright, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, back again, last time I think in 2017 we'll get to talk to him, Jose Youngs, MMA writer, fan-sided, and die-hard pro wrestling and baseball fan, Jose, thanks for coming back on the show.
2: Anytime, Money Mitch, I love being on it.
0: It's it's a fun time of year, it's a lot going on, uh, but not all the news in sports is good, uh, especially where we're sitting, John Carlos Stanton formerly Mike Stanton, now a member of the New York Yankees. A lot of people would bring on a Yankee fan to gloat and talk about how good this move, in, move is. I went the other direction and brought a Red Sox fan on. So, Jose, as somebody that, like myself, does not like the Yankees, this is a pretty tough pill to take. John Carlos Stanton, the NL MVP, ending up in the evil empire. What was your initial reaction to this trade?
2: My initial reaction was just to, like, like, go down on one knee and just like put my head down and just be like what is what is happening in the world right now I was also really surprised I didn't think Stanton I didn't think the Yankees were on his list because like for like those weeks leading up to the before the trade the three names are always the Cardinals the Giants the Dodgers and then you you kind of had the Astros thrown in there and the Yankees never seemed like a, a credible spot because they had like the luxury tax and they like they had Ellsbury on the they had Ellsbury's contract still there, and and then out of nowhere they pulled they pulled a rabbit out and they 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 got the deal done, but it's very actually it's not even just reminiscent. It's like the exact same thing as that '03 trade when they got a Rod, where the Yankees traded a All Star second baseman and prospects for the reigning MVP. A Rod was the reigning AL MVP, led the American League in home runs. This year they're sending all-star second baseman Starlin Castro and prospects to the Marlins and getting the reigning NL MVP and taking that three hundred like million dollar contract. From what I hear, they're they're taking on like two hundred and sixty million dollars of it. So it's reminiscent. I hated it, but the Yankees ended up only getting one World Series out of that A-rod trade. So if that's the case and we get like ten years of just John Carlo bombing in the playoffs, then I'm for it, especially because now that everyone keeps saying they got Stanton, Judge, Sanchez, and Didi, and they're going to hit all these home runs. They're going to set the American League record. They're going to set the MLB record for home runs. Probably also going to set the American League record for strikeouts because that's a lot of. That's like what four right-handed hitters in a row. Yeah. So just get a. This get like a. A righty specialist to lock them down. So I bet all three of them could get 200 plus strikeouts in a single season.
0: Well, my first reaction was like yours, just upset because as soon as you heard the story, right, that the Yankees were in the mix, you just knew it was going to happen. For I sure, I had that sinking feeling that they were going to pull it off. Um, and I do think that there is potential. My second thought was, well, he's not a pitcher, which, as as bad as this is for everybody else, because you know Stanton is one hell of a player, a perennial All Star, future Hall of Famer. Not their biggest weakness. They basically doubled down on their strengths, which is power hitters that like to strike out. The thing that gets me, and and we can talk about it from both sides, Jose, is they didn't have to give up that much for a guy as good as Stanton. Yeah. You have to jump at this deal if you're the Yankees, even if it does double down on strengths and, and leave you open to strikeouts because they didn't give up that much. So it comes back to what exactly are the Marlins thinking here? Derek Jeter is leading the helm. There's more factors at play. I get that I get that Stanton had a contract that didn't really give the organization much leverage could opt out in 2020 and and looked like he had all intentions of doing so but you gotta think there could have been a better deal on the table even if they just waited a little bit
2: yeah and it's all you also got to wonder if it's because arod and the yank I mean Jeter and the Yankees have that history so you kind of have to wonder if he just, he was just working with people that he trusted and knew and at the end of the day uh, Jean- Carlos Stan's contract kind of had them locked up. From everything I've heard, he wasn't going to opt out. He wanted that. He was going to sit. He was going to opt into that in 2020 and keep that 300 million dollar contract, which would have crippled that that franchise some more. Like, like I said earlier, uh, they they like and like you said, they didn't give up a lot. But from my understanding, is they were either they were asking for either a bunch of random players like they got from the Yankees, but in return, the team that they were sending Giancarlo to would take on the majority of the contract or they'll take a top prospect and they'll take and the Marlins will keep probably, I would say 50 to 60% of the, of that contract. So if the Yankees had say sent their number one and number two prospects in their farm system and not and not Starling Castro, I bet the Marlins would have kept 50% of that contract. But in the at the end they just want to get rid of, they just wanted that contract off the books. It's like that Red Sox trade when they traded Gonzalez and Crawford and, Punto, and, like, they traded Everybody pretty much... The Dodgers, yeah. Yeah, they traded all of their all-stars to the Dodgers just to get those contracts off the books. And the next year, they won the World Series. So, it could work. I'm curious, though, because, like, what? In 2015, you, the Marlins had Stanton, they had Ozuna, they had Yellick, and you're just saying, like, oh, in 2018, the Marlins are probably... And, what, that year, they were, they were like, leading the wild card until yeah, Stanton and Fernandez got hurt? So... In 2018, should have been the Marlins' year, and now what? They only have Yelich pretty much, and Fernandez, RIP, right. should be the best pitcher in baseball. Him and Stanton and Ozuna should have been the face of that franchise. So it's a uh, it's a weird time to be a Marlins fan, considering in 2018 you should have been in the World Series.
0: Well, it's kind of always a weird time to be a Marlins fan, right? I mean, just accurate, where, <laughs> just accurate. given what they've what they've done and how they've blown up teams in the past. Um, I think the contract itself hurt, too. I mean, you sign someone to a deal where you give them all the leverage to opt out, you know, in 2020, like Stanton's. Jeter, uh, on that side, being the Marlins executive, being the new, you know, face of the ownership, um, I don't know that this was him necessarily working as a double agent, but Jose, he's got to make himself available at these owners meetings, right? Like, this is your gig. Why are you not there? Why are you watching... The Dolphins play on Monday Night Football.
2: I don't. I that blew my mind. That a if you're an owner or like in, for people saying like Jeter's like a minority owner, he's like he's like Magic Johnson where he he's like the figurehead, but he's like in charge of baseball operations, and you have to be there. I That's mean, it's not job. required. <laughs> it's not required. But if a you're new and you need to make trades, you have to be there, and it it boggled my mind that he wasn't there and it you just have to wonder if it's just he doesn't know or he's a rookie or he's trying to shake up the system so it's I have no words for what what Derek Jeter is doing and I'm if I'm a Marlins fan I'm nervous that they got the next like what Phil Jackson was to the Knicks maybe (laughs) Derek Jeter is that to the Marlins
0: yeah maybe he you know maybe he doesn't know what he's doing and people would realize that it's just somebody that had a successful baseball career in another Avenue in another. Exactly. Division. So man, it's tough. Well, money Mitch effect Jose Youngs. It's not just about the Stanton trade. Ozuna gets traded to the Cardinals, not the biggest haul there as well. What do you think about that? And the fact that, you know, Scott Boris made those comments that the Marlins are, are kind of turning into a pawn shop. I am not a big Scott Boris fan, but I think that's pretty accurate.
2: I mean, that that's been the story of the marlins their whole what the marlins were created what like 94 something like that 95 Mm -hmm. and that's been their gimmick since they started i mean they won the world series in 97 they had this super young core and then they traded them all away and then 2003 they win the world series they got a young josh beckett like a young michael well not young but like a prime mike lowell they got do willis they got all these all-stars and they're they're ready for like a run As not just like back to back to back World Series, because like that's no one's done that since like 2099, but a good stretch of years where they'd make the playoffs. And what do they do? They they Loria just turns around and trades away all their young players. It's nothing new with the Marlins. Like when they built that, they built that new stadium, they signed Jose Reyes to add to Haley Ramirez, they add all of these new all stars, and then they trade them all like with less than a year later. So if, if Scott Boris is saying the Marlins are turning into a pawn shop, I don't know where he's been for the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, it's you know what's weird about this whole situation too is that it, it almost seems cyclical, right? Like no matter sure. who's in charge, no matter what the pieces are, it's always going to end with the Marlins trading everybody away. Uh, and I get in certain times, we know how sports works, especially team sports like this, where sometimes you have to make those decisions. You have to be sellers at the trade deadline. But the Marlins are preemptively deciding to just throw in the towel before they even see what they have in a lot of situations. That's why, look, each individual move might bring back some, some long-term gains, but you're going to alienate your fan base. We joke about what it's like to be a Marlins fan. It, it's it's got to be tough to know that the second that things go bad, the second that adversity hits, you're just going to give up on on your commitment. I mean, that's that's how I look at it uh, anyway. I mean, I'm not saying they need to be the free spending and, and – and, ride the sinking ship into the ground but I just think it sends the wrong message to your fans that we're not really in this for the long haul we're not in it for these long term commitments it's my take on it
2: yeah and I agree I mean that was Jeffrey Lurie is like that was his whole gimmick where people wouldn't trust him he built that he built that new stadium the taxpayers paid for it they got all these all stars he he built up the franchise and like rah rah like we're gonna win this year and we're gonna be contenders and then less than a year later he trades everyone away And the the city is like stuck with that ugly stadium that they paid for. So I don't want to judge Jeter too early because he hasn't even had he hasn't even had a season under his belt. But it's a rocky start. And if I'm the Marlins, I'm already I'm if I'm a Marlins fan. I'm just I'm probably not I'm nervous, but I'm also like not surprised because you have to expect this if you're a Marlins fan.
0: You certainly do. Uh, it, it is a very unfortunate truth of being a Marlins fan. But, Jose, one last discussion on baseball. I need your thoughts on Shohei Otani signing with the Angels. Yeah. I've been waiting for a player like this, somebody that can pitch and hit, at least before he gets to the MLB. We'll see what happens. But he's 23 from Japan. He was just great at both in the Japanese league. Some of his highlights have been amazing. But the Angels win the bidding war. And then it comes out that you know he had a, a, an yeah. injection. Now, all that considered, what do you think the Angels are getting with this signing? What do you think the MLB version of Otani will be?
2: I'm always nervous about Japanese signings. Ichiro, uh, I think, is an anomaly where he's not just the best. Japanese import he's arguably top 10 pure hitters in the history of baseball right he'd have
0: Uh, the all-time hits record if he would have for
2: sure so he's an anomaly like he's not just a great uh, Japanese import he's just a great all-around baseball player Uh, one of two players to win the MVP and Rookie of the Year in the same season but he also what has I think he's made the playoffs twice in his career which not many people talk about which is shocking Mm -hmm. to me Um, and one of them was that 2001 team that won 116 games and then blew it in the ALCS and then you have like Hideo Nomo was good, Dice K was good, Yu Darvish is good. Um, Matsui was good. Matsui was good. Matsui was is, was really good too. He's probably the second best. But everyone else and Yu Darvish, I think the the book is still out there. Uh, you, he hasn't really hit the decline yet. But all these guys kind of they peak for two or three years and then they kind of come down. Like Dice K, as a Red Sox fan, everyone was so excited. We paid him all this money. And he was good his first year. He wasn't a Cy Young. He wasn't a number two pitcher. But he was a really, really good second pitcher. And he ate up a lot of innings. Didn't get a lot of strikeouts, but he got a lot of ground balls out. So he was exactly what we needed him to be. His next year, I believe he started eight and one. And he was unhittable until he got hurt. And then he just never recovered. So I'm always nervous about Asian, Asian and Japanese imports where – They'll be really, they'll be exceptionally good for two or three years, and then they'll fall apart. Just maybe because they're not used to the, the major league uh, season. But this, what was it? It's a UCL, right? In his elbow, yeah, that, I think that that's he, correct, yes, yeah. that is that's a major red flag. I mean, that's like hey If he doesn't pitch, maybe he can get away with it. But what he can't play the outfield if he can't throw the ball. And he's not going to DH. They didn't sign – they didn't give him all that money to DH. So if I'm the Angels, I'm nervous that uh, something something's up with this. What, like not even 25, him and Trout should be the faces of the franchise. And Trout is going to be a free agent, what, when he's 26, 27, mm-hmm. unrestricted. So like how are you not going to give Mike Trout a $300 million contract in the prime – going into the prime of his career? Uh, and if Otani was going to be the guy that to keep him there and he can't play – I'd be nervous if I'm Angels fans.
0: Yeah, part of me wonders, though, and the Angels said that they were aware, and I know the MLB is looking into it, with all the the inquiries, with all the intel, that teams didn't realize that this was a possibility. I'm with you in the sense that it's a serious, it's a serious type of injury to, to consider. I'm just intrigued by what, if anything, I mean, they want him essentially to pitch and then hit when he's pitching, take the DH out of the lineup, which is... Is something to see. I think I, I think that this signing, like you said, it, it keeps the Angels relevant in the sense that if Trout is a free agent, they can use it as a selling
2: point. Uh, yeah, because, they needed to they needed yeah. to make a splash to get to keep because their farm system is not good, and they're they,
0: wasting Trout's career. Let's just call that what it is. I, I feel sure. sorry for Trout because every year, I mean, even unless he's hurt, if he's out in the lineup, he's performing night in night out. And very few people are taking notice because the Angels have been mediocre, which is insane to me. The guy is one of the best players in any generation, and he needs some help. And this was the first step in doing so. I just want to see what this guy can do because, as you said, I'm always a little skeptical when players come over from Japan. Much like in the NBA when players come over from European leagues. They've done it on a professional level, but they haven't done it on the professional level. So I'm intrigued. He can do a little bit of everything, though, so that, I think, adds to the fuel and maybe adds to the legend of him.
2: Yeah, and like you said with Trout, it's like – I and I'm also a Green Bay Packers fan. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, the fact that he only has one Super Bowl is is shocking to me considering he's the best quarterback in the National Football League. And I don't want to say they wasted his prime years, but they, the Packers have basically wasted the best quarterback in the league with subpar defense and bad coaching. And I feel like the Angels are wasting the best – not just the best center fielder – you can make an argument that Trout is top seven, if not top five, center fielders all time already. And in 10 in, in ten years, we could be – we could the argument between who's the best center fielder between Mays, Clemente, and Trout, and wow. DiMaggio is feasible. Yeah. Um, and if you're talking just pound for pound who's the most talented, Trout could be the most talented out of those three already. Because if you compare everyone's stats, he's right there, if not better. So I – what I think Trout's made the playoffs once, maybe twice, and he didn't get out of the first round. So Pujol's contract is certainly not helping him. That Josh Hamilton signing certainly didn't help him. If I'm an Angels fan, I'm nervous that he's going to leave. But as a Red Sox fan, the, the one positive thing that the stay in trade did is
0: you, NBA you NBA
2: know NBA. they're not going to be able to afford Mike Trout when he becomes a free agent because I was. Almost 100 percent sure that Mike Trout, Jersey boy, was gonna sign with the Yankees when he was a free agent.
0: Yeah, and Harper as well. But
2: oh, don't uh, even. That is just a horror. <laughs> like if they had Trout in center, Harper in left, and Judge in right, I would not watch baseball anymore. Yeah,
0: Manny Machado in there too. Uh, just shut up. <laughs> what can you do? But all right, Jose Young's Money Mitch effect. I can't. We gotta talk UFC. while I got you on here talking to the expert. Uh, a couple interesting fights coming up. The 219 UFC pay-per-view, uh, which always they, they like to ring in the new year on the 30th with a yeah. pay-per-view. headline by the women, Cyborg and Holly Holm. And this is a fight that I think a lot of people have had circled. We know what Cyborg can do. Holm's been on a bit of a, of a schneid a little bit, losing a couple fights. Is she going to be up for the challenge? Or is this Cyborg's coming out party to show everybody, not just the diehard fans, that she is and can be the face of this division?
2: I would say yes to both. I think this is really, really important for the UFC featherweight division, and really important for both Cyborg and Holly. Where Holly, even though she's she's lost, she's never been dominated, and her fights have been good. Like, yeah, she lost to Jermaine Durandamy in the for the inaugural featherweight title, but she, you can make an argument she won. And Jermaine Jermaine Durandamy had those two uh, post bell, like she had those two rounds where she was still hitting Holly after the bell and she didn't get points taken away, where if that was the case, Holly is the champion. Cyborg has looked so dominant, and, like, dominant is an understatement. Like, her, her opponents don't look the same after fighting Chris Cyborg. I mean, their faces are just bruised and bloodied and battered. It's surprising if their her opponents get out of the first round. I mean, Ronda was dominant, and she was, like, finishing people, but she wasn't, like crippling them with knockout punches she was submitting them and finishing them with t with the tko strikes but that was to beth and beth isn't the most talented uh fighter on the in the ufc women's bantamweight division cyborg is knocking people out with these vicious muay thai uh attack and she i think she's the greatest women's fighter of all time uh pound for pound but her biggest knock is she's so dominant that she's never really had an opponent that has tested her kind of like when Mike Tyson was doing this thing where people were struggling to find opponents for Mike Tyson to fight and he would win in 50 seconds and it was like uh, yeah duh which is why he doesn't really like Chris like Mike Tyson doesn't have a lot of marquee high profile wins on his belt all the guys he did fight that were high profile he lost to like Evander Holyfield and Lennox Lewis Cyborg is kind of the same where yeah she fought Gina Carano and just obliterated her. But Gina, to this, like, in hindsight, Gina then probably would, wouldn't be the champion of the UFC featherweight division now because all these women are coming up are better than her. Mm-hmm. And Chris Cyborg, in her last fight, should have fought Megan Anderson, the Invicta champion. But Megan Anderson got hurt. So they brought in Tanya Evinger, who was the bantamweight champion, coming up in weight. So Cyborg basically fought a bantamweight in her, U- in her UFC featherweight debut. So this is a test for A, Holly to see if she can win a belt back and look and be the first woman to look competitive against the hurricane that is Chris Cyborg and this is also important for Chris where she's actually fighting a female with a name another cha- former champion and is arguably the second best women's fighter on the planet after her so this is a really important fight for both women
0: yeah as a striker Cyborg is just incredible
2: I mean, oh, she, she's just, she's devastating
0: food and, and the fluidity in the octagon. She almost yeah. she almost looks like she's a legit a, a full on boxer when she's in there. I mean, it, yeah, it's, her
2: her coach, Jason Perillo, is one of the most under like he's underrated in the fact where he's very humble and, and he doesn't talk a lot. But in the MMA world, he's one of the most highly respected coaches. He's Michael Bisping's boxing coach, too. So he's the one that coached him to win the title. And he's uh, been—he was BJ Penn's coach, and BJ was dominating the lightweight division. So Chris Cyborg linked up with him. So it's no surprise that she just looks like a professional boxer in there.
0: I'm looking forward to 219 as well for this fight, as well as uh, the return of Khabib. I'm ready to see see him fight again because uh, I think there's a lot of potential there. He just got to stay healthy. But you know, 220 is another one coming up. I don't want to look too far ahead, but that card in Boston—I know you'll be there in January—is stacked. You have the heavyweight title fight and the light heavyweight title fight. Cormier and, how do you say his name?
2: Vulcan Vulcan. Ozdemir.
0: Okay, Vulcan Ozdemir from Switzerland who just came on the scene and just has been knocking dudes out left and right. Cormier gets the title back. But you know which fight I want to talk about. It's Stipe and Francis. Heavyweight title fight. Is Stipe's belt probably, and I know at this point, he's defended that heavyweight title as long and, and, and as consistently as anyone which speaks to the depth of that division. But is he in danger here? Because I look at Francis and I see a, a stone-cold killer.
2: I mean, anyone in the heavyweight division is in danger, especially the champion, because there's no easy fights when you're fighting a 250-pound man with four-ounce gloves. Um, especially Francis, he, he actually, prior to knocking out Overeem in, in that fight, he trains at the UFC Performance uh, Institute in Vegas, and they have, like, a, a machine that, like, can measure how hard a human being punches. And he actually set the record for the hardest recorded punch in human history before fighting Overeem. So, yes, Stipe is in danger of getting knocked out against Francis Ngannou, but I don't think there's a man alive who wouldn't be in danger of getting knocked out by Francis Ngannou, because when Francis fought Overeem, him, Overeem him has, has over 60 professional fights in MMA and kickboxing. He's a former... K1 Grand Prix Kickboxing champion, former Dream, former strike force, arguably the most decorated heavyweight mixed martial arts fighter of all time, arguably the greatest heavyweight striker to ever step foot into the UFC octagon. Francis Ngannou has been fighting, has been training MMA for about four years. He, <laughs> Overeem has more UFC fights than Ngannou has total fights, basically. And Francis Ngannou, through two punches... Two punches against Alistair Overeem, and he connected with one. And that was the only one he needed. So he was one for two, and he knocked out Alistair Overeem. So that should tell you how hard Francis Ganu punches. But on the flip side, Stipe has also been knocking fools out. I mean, he knocked out uh, JDS in his last fight, who outside of Francis Ganu, I would say him, JDS, and Mark Hunt probably hit the hardest in the UFC's heavyweight division after Francis And Stipe has finished both of them. Uh, Before Junior, uh, Stipe knocked out Overeem. uh, He knocked out Verdum, and he knocked out Arlovsky, all former champions, all in the first round. Uh, So this is the first heavyweight fight probably since Brock Lesnar and Shane Carwin where it's like two legitimate knockout heavyweight artists in the prime of their career. Uh, Dana White said it himself that just looking at Francis, if you don't know who Francis Ngannou is and you don't follow the UFC – Francis Ngannou looks like the heavyweight champion of something. Uh, (laughs) And Stipe is the baddest man on the planet, nicest human being in the world, is still a firefighter in Cleveland because he didn't want to quit his job. Two very humble, two very nice guys, two exceptional heavyweight fighters in the prime of their career, outstanding boxing. And so this is the first true heavyweight title fight since like 2009, 2010, somewhere somewhere in there that the UFC can, fans can really get behind. Because, yeah, well, Kane is arguably the greatest heavyweight champion ever, couldn't stay healthy, and he didn't look like an imposing figure. He did Because he's like a soft 230, yeah. which is spectacular technique and an unstoppable uh, gas tank and cardio. Francis and Stipe are massive human beings. They hit hard. They knock people out. So this is... I can't express how excited I am about this fight. Well, it's very important yeah, for the heavyweight division.
0: Stipe can't quit his job. He's got some house additions to... Uh, to. Very true. For. Very uh, true. I, I'm excited, too. I think the smart money is that this fight's not going to go the distance.
2: Oh, I don't think it's going to get out of the first round. <laughs> oh, wow. we got we got to tune in for that. We'll
0: have an official preview for it, but I'm excited for Stepe as a Cleveland guy, what he's done, and, and Francis Nagano is the predator. Enough said there, so I... Uh, Wow, it's going to be a good one. I do want one last thing on UFC, though, quickly. What do you think For the sure. fight of the year was so far?
2: Oh, uh, my my personal favorite would have to be uh, Justin Gaethje and Michael Johnson at the oh, tough okay. finale in July. I, that fight went two rounds, but I think they connected with like 100 punches in two rounds. It was Justin Gaethje's first fight in the UFC. He was the undefeated former World Series of Fighting lightweight champion. Uh, and then when World Series of Fighting folded and turned into the Professional Fighters League... They released all their champions and let them sign with the UFC. So the UFC, in a full sweep, signed Justin Gaethje, Marlon Moraes, and David Branch, all to the UFC. And Justin Gaethje had all this hype. He was undefeated. He was knocking fools out of World Series of Fighting. And they gave him a title, uh, a main event right away. They gave him a top 10 ranked lightweight with, with unbelievable boxing. And Michael Johnson, who's one of the most under like he's a very underrated fighter because he doesn't take easy fights. So his record doesn't look that good. But if you look at all the guys he's fought, Michael Johnson has pretty much fought everyone of the top 10 of the UFC's lightweight division. Win or lose, he's fought them. So it was not an easy fight. And Justin Gaethje and Michael Johnson basically just stood in the center of the, of the octagon and just punched each other until one of them went unconscious. <laughs> Both of them got dropped twice in the in the fight. And Justin Gagey's went into that like, he he falls down, he immediately tries to stand back up, did it twice, ended up knocking out Michael Johnson for sure my favorite fight of the year just because that was about two rounds of non-stop action.
0: That's a good one. That's definitely a good one. I think I'd go Aldo Holloway 1. I just really liked that fight.
2: That was, yeah, that was another real, that was an underrated one uh, in the fact that it. not a lot of people tuned into it because it was the June pay-per-views historically don't sell that much. It was in Brazil. It wasn't that stacked in the co-main and the rest of the fights, but yeah, I would have to say that was one of the more underrated ones for sure.
0: Yeah, well, you know what? There's going to be a lot of fights in 2018, and uh, every year it seems like a new storyline develops. I'm excited to see what the octagon uh, has for us in store. Jose Young's money, Mitch effect. Before I let you go, it would only be fitting. It would be unfair and cruel if we didn't talk about pro wrestling. But <laughs> you got Chris Jericho and Kenny Omega and the Tokyo Dome coming up. So how are you containing yourself?
2: I'm. It takes a lot to get me. It takes a lot to surprise me in the world of professional wrestling. I've been watching it for so long that I kind of know what's coming just from like the like last year's WrestleMania. Nothing surprised me. I knew all the stories. I I pretty much knew the direction the W R B was going by September. Same as New Japan, you kind of have a sense. You know what's going what's what's going to happen. Like Kenny Omega winning the G One last year it was a surprise just because he was the first non-Japanese professional wrestler to win the G One. So. I thought last year would have been Tetsuya Naito's coming out party, but Kenny Omega won, and then he had that six-star match against Kazushi Okada. That was surprising just because no one had ever done had a six-star match before. People didn't think six-star matches were po- possible in Dave Meltzer's rating system. I fully expected one year later they would do the rematch and Kenny Omega would win the rematch set up a Trilogy, but... Tetsuya Naito won the rematch at the G1 this year against Kenny Omega. So Tetsuya Naito, for those of you who don't know, the G1 is basically this one-month tournament, and the winner wins a briefcase similar to the Money in the Bank in the WWE. But that contract you win guarantees you the main event slot at the Tokyo, the January 5th Tokyo Dome Show of next year. So basically, it's the Royal I wish I should say it's the Royal Rumble combined with Money in the Bank where – The winner is guaranteed the title shot at their WrestleMania, but you also win a briefcase that you could theoretically lose. But Tetsuya Naito won, uh, which didn't surprise me at the time, simply because Tetsuya Naito is by far the most popular professional wrestler in Japan, where Kenny Omega is the most popular wrestler on the New Japan roster all over the world. But in Japan, there are no two bigger superstars than Naito and Okada. They're basically the Stone Cold and the Rock of New Japan. So it makes sense that they headline because Tetsuya Naito is for sure Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was voted the most popular wrestler in Japan. Japan has like a Sports <laughs> Illustrated of wrestling that is only in Japanese. And Tetsuya Naito was voted the most popular wrestler in the world in, by the fans in that magazine. Okada, I would argue, he's been the champion for like almost 400 days, more than a year. I would say this title run, is the greatest title run in the history of professional wrestling, and that's wow, including that's WWE. <laughs> that's including WWE, WCW, NWA, Jim Crockett Promotions. Like Okada's title run is so impressive, where he has not had a single bad match. Every match has been four and a half stars and above. He's won every one. He's over with the crowd, so he's not like the Roman Reigns or the John Cena's where he's constantly winning and people are upset. He's putting on a show, and the fans love him. I would say outside of the and outside of that Rick Flair, Ricky Steamboat, those, those string of matches they had in the eighties, where every single one was five stars, Okada and Omega and Naito, these stretch of run that this this stretch of matches they's had is better than the Ricky Steamboat, Rick Flair matches, and that is Jeez. like I know you're a Rick Flair guy, mm-hmm. but in terms of pure wrestling. I think this has put the wrestling to another level. This is the greatest title run in the history of professional wrestling. Naito is red hot with the fans. He is by far the most popular stable where Los Ingo Bernabe de Japón. This is WrestleMania 17 where The Rock and Stone Cold were by far. No one has been more popular than those two in a single year of professional wrestling. And they matched up in the main event. This is equivalent to that. Chris Jericho is jumping from WWE to New Japan, which is essentially Connor going into Floyd's world to box Floyd. It's equivalent to that, where Jericho has been with WWE for like 25 years. Kenny Omega is the best wrestler in the world besides Okada, and it's it's hard to pick a main event. I mean, it's I mean in Japan, it's obvious the main event is Okada Naito, but outside of that, I'm just saying they sold 80 percent of the tickets after Jericho Omega was announced. Yeah. And fifty percent of that was for non Japanese fans. So it's it's hard not to say Omega I mean Omega and Jericho is the real selling point for this one. It's
0: a great it's great that Jericho was able to do it. I think it talks about his clout that he was able to you know, he for sure. signs those part time deals, but he's got enough goodwill built up that he can do this and, and and not have serious repercussions or, or Let alone get blacklisted by the company. I'm always excited to watch good professional wrestling, something fresh and exciting. And like you said, it takes a lot to fool us and also the general wrestling fans. So anytime
2: unpredictability happens. And you have um, outside of the top, too, I mean, you have Kota Ibushi, who is a madman. I mean, he'll jump off of he's like Jeff Hardy. Well, he'll jump off of like 50 foot ladders onto things. But the difference between Ibushi and Jeff Hardy is Ibushi is actually incredibly athletic where Jeff Hardy was just a daredevil that threw himself off things. Oh, yeah. uh, he's like Cody Ibushi is like if Rey Mysterio would jump off things like Shane McMahon and Cody Ibushi is matching up with Cody Rhodes for the ring of honor championship on that same card. So if the top two fights don't get you excited, then Cody Rhodes, who's the Ring of Honor champion going over to New Japan too to defend his belt against Cody Ibushi. I mean, those three fights, those fights, those three matches alone, would make me buy a pay per view.
0: It's exciting times to be a wrestling fan. And uh, I wanted to it's wrap It's never with, been better. It's never been better. But I wanted to wrap with this. Last thing, Jose Young, thanks for coming on the show. If I had to ask you right now, in your from the time that you've, you know, been following wrestling, what you thought the best feud was? Ooh. Is it something currently going on in New Japan or is it something on the historically, you know, WWE F
2: it's hard. Cause new Japan and WWE book differently where new Japan books a year in advance. So right now, new Japan is already working on next year's wrestle kingdom storylines. Like they know what the main event next year will be already. And they spend all year building to it where it's like a slow burn that draws the fans in WWE. Vince McMahon historically hates year-long feuds where he's like, what's going to happen next week? What's going to happen next week? Which is why the WWE has had such fluctuation in fans because it's hard to to become invested in something when seven days later it could be irrelevant because Vince McMahon thinks in seven-day spurts. New Japan also doesn't really have feuds. They treat professional wrestling as a sport – where they want to they just want to see who the best wrestler is. So, Naito and Okada are simply matching up because Naito won a tournament. So, they treat the G1 like the MLB playoffs or the NFL playoffs where Naito won, so he gets the championship match. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 hard. I would say the best his, the all-time best feud would be Stone Cold and Vince McMahon because yeah, that guess. saved the WWF during the Monday Night Wars. So, it's hard not to say that.
0: Yeah, I just I gotta go for me personally, Brett and Sean, because there's so much authenticity there, especially towards the end that that stretch in '97 where Brett was the we doing the one of the most underrated gimmicks of all time, the anti-American gimmick. Yeah, for he sure. He was Getting cheered and in Canada and, and anywhere else really, and booed out of the building, and Sean was going through his issues that made him Shawn Michaels, but also made him you know one of the one of the most hated guys, you know, within the locker room, acting kind of entitled. It was perfect, and the fact that they're two all-time great wrestlers. So that to me, you, you look back and watch some of those promos, some of those matches. It, it just felt more real. Like obviously, we know what wrestling is, but there was some authenticity there. Uh, but Stone Cold and uh, Vince McMahon was great as well. Stone Cold.
2: So was uh, Rick fantastic. Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair were, were were great in the '80s too. I mean, but that that's again, that's like. That's just pure. They, they wanted to see who the best wrestler was. They didn't, And that's what the NWA fans treated that as. Like Ric Flair was the cocky, rich guy, and Ricky Steamboat was just like the the everyday man who, who just wanted to beat the rich guy. So the, there's so many, but I would for sure have to say Stone Cold and Vince just because that saved the wrestling business in the 90s.
0: Absolutely. Well, Jose, this was fun. We covered a lot of topics. I know uh, the grind never stops for you, but thanks never. for coming on, and we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll be checking in uh, as uh, UFC pay per view season ramps up to start 2018. So, uh, and I
2: hope everyone that listens to this, I hope I convince them to tune into New Japan. I mean, they have, a, they have, a, they have their own WWE Network type thing. It's called New Japan World. It's cheaper than the WWE Network, and if you order that, you can watch Wrestle Kingdom four for, for on that or a week after. So, I think January twelfth, because Wrestle Kingdom is the fifth. A week after that, Axis TV is going to stream the entire Wrestle Kingdom for free on cable. So, if you if I haven't convinced you, please tune in because it's the best professional wrestling in the world and it's never been better. than twenty two thousand seventeen 2017 in New Japan is the best year in for pure wrestling I've ever seen in my life.
0: I just heard Vince McMahon's head explode when he said that. Good.
2: <laughs> <Totally. laughs> no, I uh,
0: yeah, it's hard to doubt. We'll see. I mean, I know I'm going to be tuning in to at least a few of those matches as well. So, uh, it's exciting time, but Jose Youngs, thanks again. You know you're welcome anytime, and uh, good luck with everything as we move towards the new year.
2: Thanks, boss. Happy uh, Happy holidays and happy New Year's. We don't talk to you by then.
0: For sure, for sure. Thanks again. Big thanks to both guests on today's show, Jose Youngs and Eric Roberts. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to today's episode of the Money Mitch Effect. You can find every episode of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Easy, just search Money Mitch Effect, spell it all out, and it'll come right up. You can leave a review, rate us, subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter, Money Mitch mt one for sports and other takes. A reminder that this podcast will continue over the holiday season. we got some interesting episodes coming up bowl season, bowl pickin' with Bradford Bruns to name a few and an eventual Mighty Ducks D3 podcast we've done the first two if you're into those movies check them out in our archive but D3, the final part of that award winning, in my mind at least award winning trilogy with Nick Edmonds as well this was the Money Mitch Effect I'm Mitch Michaels thanks for listening and until next time keep enjoying sports thanks again we'll see you